0: everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast. For more information on the vision, programs, and news of our church, be sure to check us out at www.newmarketalliance.ca. We'd like to encourage you as well that no podcast, no matter how good, can substitute for the experience of joining together in person at a worship celebration. That's where God really meets people, often through the love and ministry of others. At NAC, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. Now, let's join this week's teaching. Well, what a scorching few days we've had. On that note, the sanctity of life could be labeled either a hot topic or holy discontent with what is taking place, as Chris said, in the world around us today. We'll mess them together, and you get holy hot discontent topic. I'd like to go with that, because I'm so passionate about it. However, before I go further, chances are with an audience this size, someone has either had an abortion, has a family who did, or knows someone personally who's had one. I want you to know that this message in no way criticizes or condemns you. Instead, it's my hope it will give you peace and acceptance and love. So please bear with me as I share what God has both laid on my heart and brought me through. Well, 2019 has, yes, been a pivotal year on this topic so far well first let's take a look at the good old USA our big neighbor in the south from Alabama who's legislated abortion to be illegal for any reason at any stage with the only exception being danger to the mother's life plus jail sentences given to those doctors who perform abortions to 27 other states introducing varied abortion bans. However, the American Liberties Union, Planned Parenthood Action Fund and others have vowed to fight back and lawsuits have already been filed in several states. Then there's New York who allows abortion to be performed at any time up to birth when necessary to protect a woman's life or health. To celebrate the passing of this bill, landmarks like the One World Trade Center were lit up in pink in January of this year. They also removed abortion from the criminal code, calling it instead the Reproductive Health Act. In other words, if a pregnant woman is assaulted and loses her child, the perpetrator can no longer be charged with a child's death. In heavily Catholic Ireland, the posters on the slide say keep your theology off my biology and keep your rosaries off my ovaries. There, the law went from giving the unborn equal rights to pregnant women, making abortion illegal, even in cases of rape, incest, and severe danger to the mother and banning, ordering, or taking abortion pills under threat of up to 14 years in jail, to permitting abortion during the first 12 weeks of pregnancy, and later in cases where the pregnant woman's life or health is at risk, or in the cases of a fatal fetal abnormality. Abortion services commenced on the 1st of January of this year. Do you get the impression that there's an unseen battle going on here? Well, additionally, if you've been on social media, there are no shortages of opinion on abortion. However, some people's opinions might surprise you. Here's what some people are saying from mother teresa catholic nun generous dispenser of mercy to those unborn and those abandoned and discarded who said it's a poverty to decide that a child must die so that you may live as you wish an early feminist like quaker eco rights activist alice paul who said abortion is the ultimate exploitation of women. And Susan B. Anthony, feminist, Quaker, Methodist, women's rights activist. Sweeter even than to have had the joy of caring for children of my own has it been to me to help bring about a better state of things for mothers generally, so their unborn little ones could not be willed away from them. To celebrities like Kelsey Grammer of Frasier fame, wearing a would it bother us more if they use guns? T-shirt who says, if someone has to die as a result of rape, then we should kill the rapist, not the unborn child. It's a dicey area, but if you have respect for life and respect for choice, then you can't take life away from an infant. And Gianna Jessen, personal friend of mine, speaker and struggler of cerebral palsy due to her survival of a saline-induced abortion. She says, the best thing I can show you to defend life is my life. I have met other survivors of abortion. They are all thankful for life. When I speak, I speak not only for myself, but for the other survivors, and also those who cannot yet speak. Actors Jack Nicholson, Martin Sheen, our own singers, Justin Bieber, Celine Dion, all because of their own personal stories are also pro-life and champion and value the sanctity of life. Well, someone who loves you and I unconditionally, as we've sung this morning, and is the foundation for this holy, hot, discontent topic is Jesus. He too has a personal story, and I'd like to share it with you beginning with his family tree. You'll find it in the book of Matthew, chapter one, the only lineage in the Bible that contains women's names. Their stories point out the reason for this special treatment, but that's another sermon for another time. Two of the hot topics of debate for abortion are incest and rape. Tamar, a Canaanite, is the first one mentioned in Jesus' family tree and in Matthew chapter one, in a time when women and children are considered property, Fathers find husbands for them to make alliances and better their financial state. And when the only role or identity for women is marriage and children, Tamar's is a fascinating story of greed, rebellion, idolatry, Jewish law, desperation, and restitution. For the sake of time, I'll try to summarize it. In Genesis chapter 38, Tamar is first described when Judah, her father-in-law, gives her to his eldest son, Ur. Because of his wickedness, Ur is killed by God, no less. Tamar becomes a childless widow. The worst Thing she could be in the society that she lives in. By way of a livret law and union, Judah then marries Tamar off to his second son, Onan, to provide offspring, of course, so that the family line might continue. However, this could have substantial economic repercussions, with any son born deemed to be the heir of the deceased Ur, and able to claim the firstborn's double portion of inheritance. However, if Ur was childless, Onan would inherit as the oldest surviving son. Onan performed coitus interruptus, and his selfish actions were deemed wicked by God, and so, like his older brother, he died prematurely. Tamar is now widowed a second time, still without children. At this point, Judah thinks Tamar is cursed and is reluctant to give her to his remaining son, Sheila. Rather, he sends Tamar back to his family to wait. However, even after Sheila has grown up, Judah still does not give Tamar to him in marriage. Well, when she finds out Judah's going on a trip to shear his sheep, Tamar takes action by disguising herself as a temple prostitute. Judah doesn't know who she is and pays for her services with his staff, signet ring, and cord. She becomes pregnant, almost dies when Judah finds out because... He orders her burned to death, but is saved when she produces Judah's staff, ring, and cord that he gave her. You know, Judah has a really interesting response to what, in no uncertain terms, was incest. She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not sleep with her again. Then there's Ruth, who marries Boaz, as you can see in the family tree. She is a Moabitess, whose people are a product of an ancestral union. Abraham's nephew Lot, by his own daughter, after they fled Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read their story in Genesis 19. Bathsheba, in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and 1 Kings one and two, is described as an innocent pet lamb belonging to a poor family. The lamb is stolen by a rich man, slaughtered and fed to his guests. The prophet Nathan, sent by God to King David, tells this story to David after the following events with Bathsheba have occurred. David, instead of going off to war with his men, is restless and goes up on his palace roof. He spots Bathsheba, a married woman, whose husband's off fighting, performing a ritual bath, and has her summoned to the palace where he rapes her. If you're not sure of this depiction, Ask yourself, why would Nathan describe her as an innocent pet lamb? Also, why else would Bathsheba's grandfather, Ahithophel, longtime advisor of King David, who would have been in the palace when Bathsheba was sent for, years later turn around and betray? David. Why would he then decide to side with David's son, Absalom, who tried to take over the throne? Why would Ahithophel, when he saw that his advice to Absalom to attack David immediately and kill him was rejected, go home and hang himself? You have to ask yourself, did he make an unforgivable error of judgment in the hopes of getting vengeance on David for the seduction and rape of his granddaughter Bathsheba? Choices. We all have choices, don't we? David has a choice or had a choice as a king and ruler over his subjects who were under his authority and power and with Bathsheba he abused that power and authority well that's quite a family tree don't you think god chose to include rape and incest in his son's family tree not to mention mixed race i believe so that we could see that life is sacred and that it doesn't matter how you're conceived or where you came from because you are wanted and you are loved. He included difficult stories of our sinful state to show you and I that there's redemption and restoration no matter what you've done or what's been done to you or how you were conceived. We've seen Psalm 139, written by King David, no less, this morning. And I'd like to read a bit of it again. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. That's what God thinks of you. As we've seen, an unwanted or unexpected pregnancy puts a woman and her child in a precarious and vulnerable position. Well, I'd like you to see where Jesus himself set the bar at a time when women were in a very vulnerable position within Judaism and within the culture of the day. First, they had little access to property or inheritance, except through a male relative, uh, like Ruth and Jesus' family tree, for instance. Any money a woman earned belonged to her husband. Men could legally divorce a woman for almost any reason, simply by handing her a writ of divorce. A woman, however, could not divorce her husband. At the temple in Jerusalem, women were restricted to an outer court. In synagogues, they were separated from men and not permitted to read aloud. Additionally, they were not allowed to bear witness in a court. But Jesus defied these expectations. Here are just a few examples. First, Jesus regularly addressed women in public. That was unheard of. The disciples, if you remember, were amazed to see Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman at the well of Sychar. He also spoke freely with the woman taken in adultery. Neither do I condemn you, he said. Luke, who gives ample attention to women in his gospel, notes that Jesus spoke publicly with the widow of Nain, whose son had died, who wasn't a Jew, and whom Jesus brought back to life. Plus, the woman with a bleeding disorder and a woman bent over for 18 long years, to name just a few. Jesus' regard for the full intrinsic value of women is seen in how he spoke to the women he addressed. He always spoke to them in a thoughtful and caring manner. For instance, Jesus addressed the woman with the bleeding disorder tenderly as daughter and referred to the bent woman as daughter of Abraham. However, Jesus didn't gloss over sin and the lives of women he met. Their sin was not condoned, but confronted. Each had a personal freedom and measure of self-determination to deal with the issues of sin, repentance, and forgiveness. As for children, Jesus was never more angry than when his disciples prevented children coming to him to be blessed. He said to them, Let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for such belongs to the kingdom of God. What should we draw from these passionate words? First, Jesus loves children. Jesus, after all, had been a child himself. He was a real baby, child, teenager, a man. We see Christ's love for children as he celebrates the delight of a mother on giving birth. Luke 11, verse seven, and parental love that listens to a child's every request. Matthew 7, nine. Many of his miracles involve children, the nobleman's little son, in John four verse forty six, the demonized son of a man at the Mount of Transfiguration, Mark nine fourteen, Jairus's daughter to whom Christ tenderly said, "Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, rise, Mark five forty one. So we learn from Jesus' indignation first that Jesus loves children, and secondly, that Jesus affirms and respects the personhood and spirituality of children. In saying, for such belongs to the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, he affirms their full spirituality. They are the hearts he takes to himself. Well, the heart of my stand on this holy, hot, discontent topic of the sanctity of life is a personal one. Like the women in Jesus' family tree and those he ministered to, I know what it's like to be vulnerable, to be judged, and to be discarded because... I had an unexpected pregnancy from the violent act of rape by a young university student who was from a different country, nationality, and religion. It happened while I was working as a short-term missionary for Wycliffe Bible Translators as a graphic artist and printer. Throughout my pregnancy, I was encouraged by doctors to abort my baby, shunned and gossiped about by the small town and church I returned to, and sent away after my pregnancy became obvious. No one considered the trauma and vulnerability I was experiencing, except Jesus and I clung to him. My daughter was born Christmas Eve. I named her Charity Lynn. Three days later, I left the hospital without her, having made the heart-wrenching decision to place her for adoption to a Christian adoption agency. I wanted her to be loved and accepted and cherished by her whole family and community, and I knew I couldn't give her that. I have to say, my arms and heart felt empty for a very, very long time. Not a day went by that I didn't think of her. Well, fast forward four years, I met and married a kind, loving man who loved me and loved Jesus too. In our three and a half years of marriage, we had two beautiful daughters. Life was good. The ache in my heart listened, and I was able to finally forgive those who had intended evil and who'd been judgmental. Then this happened. All four of us were in a fatal car accident in which my husband did not survive. And both myself and my daughters, now 20 months and just five weeks old, were seriously injured. I was paralyzed from the chest down. My spinal cord severed. My older daughter's head was crushed and my baby's fractured skull caused severe seizures for her. Over time, God healed us, but I just couldn't forget my firstborn. It was like I needed to know all my chicks were safe. So I contacted the adoption agency's director, Mrs. Wardlaw. Soon after, through her, I received a photo and a letter from my daughter's mum. And this is what it said: "To Charity Lynn's birth mother, Mrs. Wardlaw wrote and told us a little bit about what you have been through, and that you were wondering how Charity Lynn was doing." I would just like to say thank you for our daughter. We love her very much. I thought you might like to see a picture of her. She was a flower girl in my niece's wedding and just loved it. The little boy was from the groom's side. We are so proud of her. She's friendly, talkative. In fact, her teacher's biggest complaint is she's too chatty and doing very well at school. Her teacher has put her on an accelerated reading program. After we had received Mrs. Wardlaw's letter, I couldn't sleep for several nights just thinking about you and what you and your family have been through. I'm so sorry you lost your husband. We have always prayed for you and continue to do so. May God richly bless and guide you and your family. I've always tried to speak positively to Charity Lynn about her adoption. I tell her, not only does she have daddy and I and grandma, et cetera, who love her and pray for her, but she also has a birth mother who loved and loves her and prays for her. I hope that's okay. She loves crafts, is always drawing and painting. My mother has taught her to knit. She's now making a scarf. She says it's for her brother, although he doesn't seem too thrilled with that. I hope this letter helps you. God bless and keep you. Sincerely, Charity's adoptive mother. I treasured that photo and letter and always carried it in my purse. It was the only link I had to her. Well, because of what I had gone through, I didn't want any other woman, young or old, to be alone in their most vulnerable time. God enabled me to be on the board to open two pregnancy care centers in Ontario and Alberta. There, women are taken care of, no matter their decision, no matter the outcome of their pregnancy. After more than 30 years, God brought my little daughter, Lauren, new name, her husband, my granddaughter, and her amazing mom, Anna, whose letter you just heard. Her dad passed away. Now, my dear friend, into our lives. You can see from the pictures what our first reunion was like. On a personal note, reunion has not been, our reunion has not been without conflict. As some of my family's members have not been accepting of God's restoring what the locusts have eaten. Has he done that in your life? Life is complicated, don't you think? And we struggle with an unseen enemy. But let's just for one minute from what you've seen in my life. Give God a resounding hallelujah. Let's hear it. Hallelujah, God. Hallelujah. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Do you want to know more about the sanctity of life? Go watch the movie, Unplanned, if you haven't yet. I just heard this morning that due to popular demand, today is not the last day. You have until the 29th of this month. It's still playing in select theaters, and it's all about the message you just heard and more. Well, the sanctity of life is something we all need to protect. And whatever way God is leading you, as you hear his message to you today. There are lots of ways and means to do so. Pregnancy care centres are a great place to start and they're always looking for volunteers. I have to ask you though, first and foremost, knowing that each of you also has a story Maybe not as traumatic as mine. Maybe more traumatic than mine. But where are you on your journey right now? Is there something or someone that's preventing you from healing? Are there people you need to forgive? Do you need to forgive yourself? I had to do that in order to live at peace and to learn to trust again. And Jesus walked with me as I did so. I'd like you all to bow your heads right now. And as I close in prayer, if there's anyone who needs prayer, please raise your hand. I see your hand, thank you, and yours, and yours. God, you are the giver and taker of life. Thank you for loving us and creating us to do and be what you made us to be. And we pray for those individuals this morning who have raised their hands. God, I pray that you will answer the prayer of their heart, whether it be for forgiveness or trauma, or a circumstance that they have no control over and are just confused as to which way to turn. I know that you can forgive anything and everything and that you bear our burdens each and every day and that you also are a restorer of what the locusts have eaten. Thank you, Lord. For giving us life, not just here, but for eternity. And we look forward to seeing you face to face. In Jesus' precious name, amen.